Hey everyone, welcome to a new week and a brand new shiny episode of People Are Wild. Now back for more and to even the score, whatever that means, it's me, Kim, your friendly neighborhood ER travel nurse of a host. And I should just say this, that you might hear some ambient noises. Where I'm recording from this week, well, the downstairs people really love to use their garage to open and close and open and close and open and close. In fact, I think they've burnt through three motors. Also, there might be construction going on outside, so who knows what they're building out there. It's a madhouse, I suppose. So I have tried my best to minimize the sounds, but I do apologize if certain things do come through. I just wanted to let everybody know that up front. Now this week, I have been trying to figure out my roller derby name if I were ever to actually rollerblade. Unfortunately, I have seen way too many broken wrists as a result of people falling while rollerblading. The good old foosh. F-O-O-S-H. Fall onto outstretched hands. There you go. There's an acronym you'll use in daily life. Maybe not. So I guess my dreams of being the Duchess of Suck It, huh? That's a good one, will have to be, well, redirected. But what I can do is get into a new episode. So let's get things started. I have just finished listening to Celine Dion's I Drove All Night on a loop repeat for about an hour. You guys, by the time you hear this, she'll have already been done with her Las Vegas residency. Let me just go on a side note real quick and a little bit of a tangent. I did see her live while I was in Vegas for my last assignment. It was amazing. Plus, the woman in front of me cried the whole time and I was trying to figure out why she cried the whole time. But then again, can't blame her. It is Queen Celine. Now, I always have to make sure to mention which prayer candle that I lit, and a last-minute substitution came. It is my Keanu Reeves prayer candle that I am somewhat, slightly, very obsessed with. It smells like excellent adventures, of course. They're making a third one. I'm so excited. But I'm focused in. I am zoned in. I am locked in. And I am ready, if you're ready, to talk about how people are wild. Joan Alexandria Molinsky was born on June 8, 1933, in Brooklyn, New York, to Russian-Jewish immigrants Beatrice and Meyer Molinsky. She was a Brooklyn girl, born and raised, and being the first female late-night host is where she spent some of her days. Now, if you've connected the dots, you know who I'm talking about today. It is the one, the only, a pioneer in comedy, the dearly departed Joan Rivers. Now, ever since hearing about her passing on September 4th, 2014, I have this curiosity about how she passed away from a medical complication as a result of a seemingly routine procedure. And I never really dived into what happened until now. And the more that I uncovered things, the more frustrated I became. So let's get into it. Joan Rivers was infamous for many things over the course of her five-decade-long career. As stated before, she was the first female host of a late-night talk show host that started in 1986. Her quick wit and comedic style would influence Billy Crystal, Sarah Silverman, Whoopi Goldberg, just to name a few. She became synonymous with red carpet coverage later into her career. 
and the illustrious E! Network gave all of us fashion police with Joan Rivers showing that her observational humor was still as sharp as ever. Now, by the by, Joan won the first season of Celebrity Apprentice, and one of the first winners of the regular seasons of The Apprentice was Bill Rancic, who married Juliana Rancic, who later would co-host Fashion Police on E! with Joan Rivers. Now, how's that for some connections? Boom! Everything is connected, though. Look for the patterns, reptilians walk among us, and the New World Order is real, and the government is trying to keep us all in the dark. Okay, sorry about that. Whoa, I don't know what happened. Did the government take over? They might have taken over. Anyways, back on track. Another thing that Joan Rivers was synonymous with would be going under the knife. Plastic surgery was her jam. And she was eerily quoted as saying, quote, I've had so much plastic surgery. When I die, they will donate my body to Tupperware, end quote. See, Joan Rivers had grown up being overweight in her younger years, which left an imprint on her body image for the rest of her life. In the late 80s, she struggled with bulimia as well as depression after the death of her husband, and as well as the death of her psychologist who had become a close friend and confidant who passed away from AIDS. Now, through counseling and support from her family and friends, Joan did make a recovery. But as much as I want to devote so much time to Joan Rivers' journey, humor, and zest for riffing on lifestyles of the rich and the famous, this is more about the horrible decisions that were made that ultimately caused her to stop breathing, which caused her heart to then stop, which required immediate interventions that ultimately led to her being placed on life support only for her to never wake up from her medically induced coma. It's a routine procedure that was done numerous times at Yorkville Endoscopy Clinic, an outpatient surgery center in New York. Joan Rivers had become concerned about her voice. She noticed that she had been developing some hoarseness to her voice, as well as having some concerns about reflux. Now enter in the team of doctors who worked at Yorkville, who would be involved in Joan's care. Before she underwent anesthesia to go under the knife, Joan signed a written consent form allowing for surgical procedures, which included an upper endoscopy. This is a procedure that examines the digestive tract in the upper part of the GI system and a possible biopsy. Now, in the procedure room was Dr. Lawrence Cohen, the then medical director of Yorkville, and Dr. Renukula Ban. Bankula, an anesthesiologist. Joan's personal doctor, Dr. Gwen Coravin, who was an ear, nose, and throat specialist, was also present in the room. Now, just as a side note, in case nobody out there has heard me say this before, regardless of gender, ENTs are in like the top five in the hierarchy of hot docs according to specialties. And there is a hierarchy Know it, believe it, live it, I might disclose it at a later time. Now, please keep in mind, most of the information I'm presenting to you is based off of the inner workings presented in the lawsuit that Joan's daughter, Melissa Rivers, would later file after Joan's death. Please also keep in mind the following. Dr. Corvin, our ENT, A, should not have been allowed into the room while the procedure was taking place, and B, was not allowed or licensed to perform any medical procedures 
at the Yorkville Endoscopy Clinic. However, clinic staff did not stop her. That is what the lawsuit alleged. Doctors have to have privileges in facilities if they want to provide a hands-on care to their patients. And Dr. Corvin did not have that, which is something we all need to keep in mind as this goes further. Now, Joan had signed her consent to undergo that upper endoscopy procedure and the possible biopsy. These two procedures would be performed under general anesthesia. All of this according to a report by the New York City Medical Examiner's Office, which investigated her death. Now, let me take a step back. In doing research about Joan Rivers' death, it became crystal clear that for some doctors who are charged with taking care of celebrities, the need to please their patient seemingly outweighs the oath that they take to do no harm. Now, according to the malpractice suit, the doctors were so eager to please that they violated protocols. And at one point, Dr. Lawrence Cohen, the medical director, pulled out his cell phone and took a selfie with Joan Rivers on the operating table. She wasn't awake at that time. Now, the main anesthesiologist, Dr. Bankula, was concerned that she would ultimately be part of the blame in Joan Rivers' death and knew something was off. She knew this the day of the procedure, and that's evidenced by the five pages of detailed notes that she put into Joan's chart describing what she saw and heard. Sometimes in medicine, you just know that you're going to have to document in depth and in detail in order to basically do a CYA move for something that has happened in the care that you provided for a patient. And going from Dr. Bankula's notes, it painted a clear picture of just how chaotic the scene had become at the clinic. Dr. Corvin, the ENT that did not have privileges to perform at the clinic, somehow apparently became the lead in this procedure and performed a transnasal laryngoscopy on Joan. Now, this is when there is a camera that is inserted through the nose and examines the back of someone's throat as well as their vocal box and vocal cords. But see, the thing is, this procedure was never initially discussed with Joan and technically wasn't on the consent that she had signed. Dr. Bankula raised questions given that Joan had not authorized this additional procedure. But medical director Dr. Cohen ignored the objections and allowed Dr. Corvin to go on with their laryngoscopy. According to the notes, Dr. Bankula, sensing something was amiss during the procedure, warned that Joan's vocal cords were extremely swollen and that they could seize up. The suit notes that during the procedure, Dr. Bankula had trouble keeping Joan's oxygen saturation at a safe level, and her oxygen dipped again during the actual endoscopy that they did ultimately perform. Now, when the endoscopy was done, Dr. Corvin wanted to do another laryngoscopy. Again, a concern Bankula raised objections. In response to those objections, medical director Dr. Lawrence Cohen said, quote, you're such a curious cat, and dismissed her concerns even going so far as to saying that 
Dr. Bankula was paranoid about what was going on. And ultimately, he let Dr. Corvin proceed with the second laryngoscopy. Now, just as a reminder, Dr. Corvin did not have privileges to operate at that clinic. And even though Joan was sedated at a lighter level after the endoscopy, which left her vocal cords at greater risk of irritation from the medical instruments, Dr. Corvin did indeed go on to do that laryngoscopy for that second time. And soon thereafter, Joan's vocal cords closed and she stopped breathing. Dr. Bankula realized that Joan was, quote, suffering from an airway obstruction and or laryngeospasm, end quote. This meant there was a closing of the vocal cords, but they did not demand what we call a crash cart. Crash carts have all the drugs that you need in order to help somebody to get through a respiratory arrest or a cardiac arrest, any unforeseen stopping of breathing or stopping of the heartbeat. And a lot of times there are drugs in that crash cart that help with facilitating that. You have epinephrine or succinylcholine, which some of you actually out there who are true crime people might know what that is outside of the healthcare people who also know what that is. Succinylcholine is a paralytic used in order to intubate as it allows the muscles to relax in order to facilitate the insertion of a breathing tube. By the way, I feel like there was like a Dateline episode where someone killed their husband by injecting succinylcholine. Did I make that up? Help me out here, Date with Dateline. I feel like you guys would know. Also, succinylcholine is just fun to say sometimes because it just makes you sound like, oh, you know what you're talking about. Even though we always abbreviated to sucks, which is like, no, I gave him 200 of sucks in order to intubate. But anyways, that's neither here nor there. Or is it? Do I really want to name a future dog I have succinylcholine? No, I feel like that would be a bad move. Okay, uh, let's get back to the operating room. So Joan is unable to breathe and needs immediate interventions in the form of an advanced airway to be placed now. So Dr. Bankula looked around for Dr. Corvin to do what we call a crike procedure. So sometimes airways will get closed off because there is that swelling that happens and you can't pass a tube through the mouth down into the lungs and you have to essentially crike your patient. This means that you would have to make a hole a little bit lower onto that airway, into the throat really, uh, and that is how you facilitate a tube being placed into the lungs. So Dr. Bankula is looking around for Dr. Corvin to do this procedure to crike Joan Rivers. This is something as an ENT, she should have no trouble with and no doubt has the training and expertise to do. But Dr. Corvin was nowhere to be found. She didn't just leave the room. She had already left the clinic. And according to Dr. Bankula's notes, she had essentially abandoned her patient. And patient abandonment is a big no-no in medical anything. Trust me on that. Now, when it was noticed that Joan could not breathe, a code blue had been called, but it took 12 minutes after the doctors had called the code blue for someone in the clinic to dial 911 for an ambulance to come. If you think about it for outpatient procedure places, same-day surgeries, they're limited in terms of what they have on hand 
to provide resuscitative efforts. They don't have the same tools and equipment that we do in the hospital and especially in the ER and critical care settings. But that's not to say that they don't have something. But noticing and immediately intervening when the patient is crumping and going down the tubes is something that should be universal to all healthcare providers. You should recognize that if somebody can't breathe, you should probably do something about that. You should recognize that if a heart stops beating, you should probably do something about that. The fact of the matter is that in Joan Rivers' case, there were delays, and it was catastrophic in what happened next. You see, at this point, Joan was already in full-on cardiac arrest in addition to having stopped breathing. An ambulance did arrive and shortly thereafter transported her to Mount Sinai Hospital in Manhattan. Soon enough, media outlets reported that Joan Rivers had been hospitalized and that she was in a medically induced coma to stabilize her vital signs. Her daughter, her only child, Melissa Rivers, was in shock, but released a statement that her mother was resting comfortably and asked that Joan be kept in everyone's thoughts and prayers. However, the difficult decision was made to withdraw life support, and Joan Rivers passed away on September 4th, 2014. Her death stunned Hollywood and beyond. President Obama hand-wrote a note to Melissa Rivers expressing his sympathy. Her fashion police co-host alongside Melissa had a special memorial episode that really captured just how much Joan had impacted so many people. Kelly Osborne said, if it wasn't for your mother, I wouldn't be able to be me. My mother wouldn't be able to be her. And outspoken independent women wouldn't be who they are if it wasn't for women like Joan paving the way. While Joan had been hospitalized, her longtime friend Jay Reddick said, quote, you know how polarizing she could be, but people don't realize what a fantastic lady she is. The charities that she supports without fanfare, without people knowing. She is a great person. Now, the medical examiner would later determine that Joan Rivers died from, quote, anoxic encephalopathy due to hypoxic arrest, end quote, translated to mean brain damage due to a lack of oxygen. And the medical examiner ended up classifying her death as a complication of a medical procedure. This classification is actually not commonly used. More deaths are certified as homicides, suicides, or natural causes. And this classification might have been integral in starting the ball rolling into investigating the Yorkville Endoscopy Clinic where her procedure had been performed. Ultimately, the clinic lost its federal accreditation and a settlement was reached with the doctors and the clinic that had been sued for malpractice over Joan's death, with the doctors accepting the responsibility for Joan Rivers' death, although the dollar amount of the settlement was not disclosed. Now, Melissa Rivers said in a statement that she was happy to be, quote, able to put the legal aspects of my mother's death behind me and ensure that those culpable for her death have accepted responsibility for their actions quickly and without equivocation, end quote. She would later go on to say she hoped no one had to go through what her family had endured and vowed to work towards ensuring higher safety standards in outpatient surgical clinics. Melissa Rivers and her lawyers, however, said they 
did not want the focus to be solely on what happened to her famous entertainer of a mother. They said that the case highlighted the lax oversight at outpatient surgical centers and that they would be working to advance legislation in Albany, New York, to ensure that these clinics operate under the same minimum safety standards as hospitals do. And to quote Ben Rubinowitz, a lawyer for the Rivers family, profit cannot be placed above patient safety. So in the grand scheme of things, many errors happened in that Manhattan clinic. Now, can you say for certain that if they didn't, Joan Rivers would still be alive? Of course not. But it is safe to say that if those errors had not have happened, the outcome would have certainly been different. Waiting 12 minutes before calling 911 and not having a crash cart cracked open and after calling a code blue really speaks to me, being from the world of the ER. And I totally understand why Dr. Bankula wrote extensive notes about what happened and probably quoted everything and everyone that was in the room as the concerns that she had been raising seemingly fell on deaf ears. But then again, unless you were present in that room, we don't really know exactly how the interactions went. But going off of her notes, there was chaos that was evident in that room. And, well, ego that contributed to stalling life-saving interventions on behalf of Joan Rivers. And that's really what kind of infuriated me. You see, when we get simple routine procedures done, we are reassured that we place our trust in the hands of skilled healthcare providers who will always have our best interests and the interests of our loved ones in that operating room at the forefront of their minds. Joan Rivers trusted the medical team involved in her care that day, and so did her family. She was scheduled for an event later on that week. She was under the impression that she would wake up, go home, recover, and she'd get results at a later time. But when pride and being, well, starstruck by having a high-profile patient in one's care clouds the judgment of a healthcare provider, catastrophic events can result. Joan Rivers' death was a tragedy on various levels. Joan Rivers was a woman who made history throughout her life. She influenced and inspired countless people. To this day, her sharp wit and snark are missed by many across different landscapes. To be spotlighted by Joan Rivers was an honor for many, and the memories that they have from their time associated with her will never be forgotten. So on that note, thank you for listening for another week. Practice random acts of kindness. Take time for yourself this week, and I'll see you next time.